Thank you. You may be seated. Well, we get to be blessed by such wonderful uh, worship, and thank you to uh, the choir and to James and to Holly as well. Holly is filling in for Peter T. I don't know, is our PowerPoint working at all? Because we do have a picture, so give me a thumbs up if it is. Okay, we're reloading. But anyways, maybe at some point we'll have a picture for you of Sienna Amelie, who was born last week, which is Peter T's baby. And so we want to just celebrate that. So excited for him and everything going on in his life. And of course, he's with that little baby on his chest right now, probably. And we're all jealous. And he's struggling for sleep and everything else. But uh, we're so excited for him. Um, We're going to end our series today on looking at uh, covenant, um, this major theme within the Bible. So I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke 22 or follow along on the screens. screens. I'll uh, read the scripture and then we'll do some unpacking from there. Luke 22 and we're going to read about uh, 20 verses today. It says this, Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus." They were delighted and and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them, and when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where uh, I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared for the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. A couple of observations as we get into the text this morning. Uh, We see at the beginning of the text that there is definitely... Uh, uh, a moment of confusing in-between going on here, right? This is Jesus' last day 
with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And so we're reading a story about how the Son of God is going to spend his last moment with the ones he loves before he goes to do the most difficult thing that he is called to do. And yet it's such a beautiful mix of joy and sorrow right at the beginning. We see these paradoxical moments where Judas is uh, there and he is betraying Jesus and what a difficult experience that must have been for the 12 and especially for Jesus who's called Judas to be his disciple who spent intimate moments with him in ministry and now in these final moments, in these critical moments, he is uh, learning and, and knows somehow that Judas is betraying him. And yet there he is in this upper room having a meal, which was the time of great joy, the time of uh, just like we have, where we get to have fellowship and hospitality as we sit at a table. And there he is in the final moments with his disciples in this context. And it must have been such a mix of things. And we live right now in a confusing in-between. And, and I'm sure for the disciples watching all of this go down and hearing Jesus say what's about to happen, but also being with him at the table must have been such a confusing moment for them, this moment of joy right before this great storm that was coming. And so I want to just speak for a moment about the covenant that is made in the confusing in-between. So we just want to relate it to my world. You can uh, understand where I'm coming from. Uh, a week ago, I got asked to do a wedding by one of my best friends from high school. In fact, one of only two friends from high school that I'm in regular contact with. But if you have these types of things, as we get older, they become fewer and further between. And... So this was like my happy thought. Oh, my friend Monzo is getting married, and I'm going to be able to do his wedding, and all my friends are going to come into town and people I haven't seen forever. Well, we get to the rehearsal dinner on Thursday. I mean, the rehearsal ceremony, and everything goes fine, and everything's beautiful. But in between the rehearsal uh, ceremony and the rehearsal dinner, he checks his email. This is why you never check work email. No, I'm just kidding. He checks his email uh, going to the dinner, and he discovers he's a public school teacher. He's been vaccinated, but he tested positive for COVID. And so here we are. We pull up to the restaurant, and you, I don't know if you've ever been in one of these moments where it's just total chaos, and you don't know why, what's going on yet. Nobody's told you, but you can just see something went wrong. And then eventually somebody comes out of the chaos to inform you about what went wrong, and then we all go descend into the chaos, right? And we start experiencing all of the emotions, and particularly the emotion of a friend whose wedding isn't going to be what we thought it was going to be. And how do we help our friend? How do we care for our friend in the midst of this really challenging moment? And then his bride, his wonderful, beautiful bride, 
um, and all the work and preparations that have gone up to this moment. I know many of you have stories like this, uh, stories where all of a sudden, you know, your happy thought, uh, the thing that was supposed to be the joy of the season of life, has now kind of turned into this confusing moment, this paradoxical moment where we're supposed to celebrate love, and yet it's all sort of not how it should be. And what do we do when our worlds get turned upside down like this? Um, Pete Scazzaro is a wonderful uh, Christian author. I recommend his books and podcasts to you. And I want to use his three simple recommendations for how to deal with grief and loss and how they apply to this text uh, from Luke 22 that we just read in order to help you and, and to help us as a guide through what we do when things go wrong. When you have these experiences like this experience with the wedding, whatever that version is for you, what do you do in response to that? I know I've had that question many times. Uh, so three things. The first is, and we kind of covered this last time I preached, but I want to just touch on it a little bit more. First is, pay attention to your feelings. When, when you experience grief or difficulty, pay attention to your feelings. The second is, wait on God. Because the temptation is to fix it or to go fast, but we're going to see how the scripture invites us to wait on God. And then finally, the third is letting the old birth the new. So we're going to have a suspicion or an assumption that even though we're going through something difficult in this confusing in-between, that God is, is doing his work, even in the midst of the difficult and challenging thing. Okay, so how does that apply to Luke 22, this idea of paying attention to your feelings? Well, I'm just going to come out and say Jesus was a crier. Uh, there's multiple times uh, in Scripture where we see Jesus weeping. Um, the most famous is a prelude to this text in Luke uh, 19. We see as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, and he's looking over the city uh, that everyone else is shouting, Hosanna, 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 because the King has come, the Messiah has come. And yet in his internal world, in his spirit, he is full of grief because he knows what the future of Jerusalem will be. He knows where he is headed. And so he does what all of us are invited to do in moments of difficulty. He experiences the emotion. He cries and is devastated about the reality of the bad situation and the world that he is experiencing you are invited in this church and hopefully every church to experience the great span of human emotion. And I believe that God speaks into every single human emotion. And if we can't identify, if we can't identify our emotions, we can't work through the pain and the loss. And so we need to become a people that can acknowledge 
how we're feeling, even if it's bodily, even if it's stress that takes over and our body begins to teach us, hey, things are a little out of whack here. This is the time where we need to slow down, to stop, to give ourselves space and silence and solitude and come before God with the full spectrum of our emotion. One of my favorite pictures I've shared with this, uh, this with you before, but um, when I get to this point, and I'll just be honest, I was there on, th- on Wednesday before this wedding story I told you about. I was up at a place called Madre de, de la Rosa, which is a, a monastery. They have this stunning picture of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane and he's there, he's on his knees praying, and he's crying And he's asking God to take the cup from him. But we know the story that God's will is that he would would receive the cup. But in the background, there is Peter. And he's sleeping. So when Jesus asked Peter to pray with him, his flesh Uh, overcame him, and he got tired and weary, even though Jesus asked him to pray through the night, and so he's sleeping. And so when the guards come to take Jesus away, we see two different approaches from Jesus and Peter. Jesus' approach is to submit to the will of God. Peter's approach, because he fell asleep and didn't bring his emotions before his heavenly father is to strive, right? Because right when they come, what does he do? He gets out his sword and he goes to attack the soldiers that are coming for Jesus. This is a great picture for us of the two things that can happen depending on how we respond to our grief. If we respond to our grief by denying it, by numbing it out, by pretending that it is not there, then we become like Peter. And eventually, the grief will catch up with us and we will start to strive because we haven't brought it to our Heavenly Father yet and submitted it to Him. And so we see Jesus in prayer, in agony. That's what we want to avoid, but it is ultimately the way to learn God's will in the midst of grief. Nothing any of us want to sign up for, but also the thing we most need, I think, to learn in a season like this. How do we bring our true emotions to God? You know, as we went through 1 John in our last sermon series, and as we look at uh, just the New Testament epistles, one of the things you start to see in the early church the main heresy that was taking place in the early church as as church went on for a little while was a denial of the incarnation. And there was a very real reason why people wanted to come in and say Jesus wasn't really human. Because it's the human temptation to want an all-powerful God that can do everything for you. In fact, that sells better. The message I just gave you doesn't sell as well as the one where God's going to come, he's going to fix all your problems, and it's going to be roses and daisies for the rest of your life. That that message has a a great sales pitch, and you all feel good, and you all walk out. But the thing is, is 
that was the main heresy in the early church that the early church fathers fought so hard against. Because they knew Jesus, and they knew what he was like, and they saw him suffer, and they saw him go through suffering. And so to deny that for the sake of a good sales pitch was heresy to them. And so the humanness of who Jesus is and how that represents God's heart um, is so important for us to acknowledge in these seasons. Okay, so be present before God. Learn to unpack the iceberg. You know, ask questions. I see what's going on on the surface, but what is going on underneath? And then waiting on God. We see this directly in our text. This is one of the more stunning little portions of this text uh, from Luke 22 as we talk about uh, communion is this moment, this moment that I wonder so much about, have so much curiosity about how Jesus could do this simple act, knowing the context of where he was. Jesus was able to recline at the table with his disciples in the midst of his darkest moment. My instinct, I think most of our instinct, knowing that tomorrow was the day when we were going to be killed, would probably to be extremely anxious about the future. And yet, Jesus, knowing he was going to be betrayed, is able to be fully present with his disciples, in fact, to recline, to rest and relax. Um, a couple of, actually last week on Monday, I've had, I've had an exciting week of sermon illustrations. I got <laughs> a, uh, another picture, because I've been using this picture of big set waves in the ocean crashing as a way of thinking about how do we endure through this pandemic. But I got another picture, I think, on Monday. I was pretty worn out, and I had the opportunity to go down to the beach. While I was there, it was extremely calm surf day at the beach. And there were just little waves just kind of rolling in. And I brought my surfboard, but I couldn't even catch a wave. It was so such minimal surf, and so I just decided to go play around in the waves and kind of uh, just, you know, splash around and get wet. And as I'm getting ready to come in, I take one final wave in, I feel like this feeling of a sharp knife go into my foot and then come out of it. And I was like, that was really weird. And I get out of the water, and I see my foot is bleeding, and I start walking a little bit, and then I start to feel this intense feeling like 10 bees just stung my foot all at once. And I'm like, that seems weird. This is not going well. And so I start walking up the beach a little more. I see the lifeguard, and I say, hey, I think there's something wrong with my foot. And he's like, oh, yeah, you got hit by a stingray. Uh, And I was just like, okay, what does that mean? And he's like, we'll just come back to the back of this, the truck here. And they were like set up for stingrays, okay? 
because anybody here been hit by a stingray? Raise your hand if you had. Yeah, so a couple of you have. I didn't realize how common this was, uh, but they were so ready for it. They had boiling hot water in the back of the truck just waiting for somebody to come out of the water, and I just happened to be the lucky guy on that day. And if you've been stung by a stingray, you know it hurts really bad, usually for about 90 minutes. And for whatever reason, the antidote to getting hit by a stingray is that you just have your foot in the hottest water you possibly can that doesn't burn you. And so when you have your foot in the water, it feels okay. And when there is no uh, hot water, it feels like extreme pain. And I was thinking about that in the context of how do you get through these types of disruptions, these moments where you're like, come on, really? After everything that's going on now, <laughs> I'm at the mercy of this stingray. I've been poisoned. And, and so one of the ways after some reflection that I think I've processed it is to say, how do we wait through pain? Like, the pain is real. Um, and of course, we're going to get upset. We're going to, you know, say what we need to say, complain to the lifeguard, uh, get mad internally, get frustrated, upset. But that's like the first 10 minutes. And then you have a lot more time to go. How are you actually going to get through this thing? All this complaining isn't really going to get you through, right? All this complaining kind of just makes it worse and just spiral yourself into like discouraging feelings and thoughts and emotions. And so I think one of the, the beauties of this idea of reclining at the table in the midst of a moment where you're waiting on God, even in trouble and disaster, is to reframe and to think, what is it that I can still be thankful for? What is still beautiful in this moment? The Bible encourages us to practice remembrances of gratitude. Um, in 1 Thessalonians, it says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you. So I could complain all I want, which I, I did, about the stingray, but eventually i got to be thankful for hot water. I got to be thankful for a lifeguard that was just right there. I have to be thankful that God uh, has given me all that I have that I'm now so upset, <laughs> even that I'm missing out on it for just a little while. And so in the midst of waiting, it's so important for these moments of acknowledgement. Habakkuk, uh, the prophet Habakkuk, has this, this moment of great distress, and yet he's able to write in his moment of great distress. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. There's this suspicion that God, uh, even in the midst of trouble, is sovereign. That underneath it all, there's something holy and important. And even though we need to be able to say, I don't know what it is. I'm sitting in the mystery of this pain and suffering, and I can't 
name what it is. And I'm being tossed to and fro by the storm that I still have this suspicion that I'm not going to give up on that the Lord is in his holy temple and that he does care. And so be present with your emotion, but also learn how to wait on the Lord. You are not on your timeline. You are on God's timeline. And the more we strive for our timeline, the more the lesson we need to learn is that God is in his holy temple, that he is in charge, he does things on his timeline and his way, and he's inviting us right now to learn what that is. And I'll tell you, that's why that stingray has a metaphor for me right now, because, you know, I thought things were calming down, I thought things were opening up, and right when things got calm, all of a sudden I got stung, because when the waves are calm, here comes the stingrays. And apparently I have more to learn about being on God's timeline. Because I was ready for things to shift back into Peter control mode. I don't know if you were. And so to learn this lesson again is for me to again be reminded of what happens in the waiting. See, because the waiting does something to us. It forces an emptying. When we hit limitations, when we hit our limits, and we can see it, and it's so obvious to us about our limits, that is a moment where we can surrender or keep fighting. And if we're willing to go to the poverty of our spirit, we're allowing ourselves to break our will to let our will be broken. And in our will being broken, our control being broken, all of a sudden the scripture testifies to this reality that God's doing something stronger. God can do more because there's more space. The more poured out you are, there's more space for him to come fill it in. And this is where we see this new covenant happening in this third point, right? The old is birthing the new. Jesus is saying, this cup, this cup is the new covenant. There's so much in that. It's not forsaking the old covenant. It's saying that God used the old covenant, this one people, this one uh, land, this one uh, promised land, and this one people in order to carry forth these eternal truths into a new season. But now with this cup, Jesus is taking this old covenant that was just for one people, and he's saying now it's for all people. And the way that it is going to be for all people is through his journey of suffering. This covenant that he is making again through his bloodshed. And so the old births the new. 
For us, a lot of times, what this looks like is that if we can allow ourselves to go through these three steps with our grief, then we come out the other side with a bigger heart, with more compassion, with more capacity to love and care and heal. You see, what Jesus is showing us is how big a heart can get. Jesus had the biggest heart, the most compassion, and he was willing to do whatever it took to extend that compassion. He was willing to be emptied all the way so that he could be filled up with the Father's love to extend that to the entire world through you and through me. And so I know right now it's probably hard for you to think, God, you're doing a mighty work. But if the scripture is true, it is in the moments of our great confusion, in the in-betweens, where the mightiest work is being done. Let me just read to you this final scripture as we prepare ourselves for communion. I think this is a beautiful meditation on covenant from Isaiah. He says this, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Will you close your eyes and open your hands if you're so willing? And just let me read that to you again as a blessing from God and a promise from God to you. Would you open your heart to receive this again from Isaiah 54? Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you extend your compassion to us. I pray, I don't know everyone's week, Lord, but I know that there's been uh, trouble and, and, and hurt and grief. And so I pray for your compassion to rest on your people here at St. Andrews. We thank you for your love that you demonstrated for us on the cross. In your precious and holy name,